Well, this episode, I'm hoping uh, my two friends to cover two two topics. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I uh, I always hesitate to label the live streams what we'll be talking about because in my experience, uh, that doesn't always happen. And uh, you know, we end up doing stuff. But there there there's a there's a uh, some some hoopla it seems going on in the open source world at the at the Linux level, a level that I have very little familiarity with. Uh, but so I know I know because uh, because you Ben actually know how open source works and uh, you work on Linux. So you might actually like have some more knowledge here. And then Ed, you, you are paid to follow this kind of thing. So you two might be more wise about what's going on than my uh, uh, dilettantism. I tried to use that word uh, with my son the other day while we were biking to school. And I was like, I wonder if he's going to ask me what that means. As if I too am a child who gets excited when I know some fancy word. Uh, but he he was not impressed at all. Just acted like nothing happened when I said dilettante. Just kept going on. Didn't didn't care. So I don't know if you want to incorporate that into the uh, next episode of the Wobbly Life, Ben. But that might be a the the Wobbly Life dilettante. Yeah, are you still watching? Are you are you subscribed? I'm definitely subscribed. Oh, I mean, thank you, know, you. That's very kind. I, I don't I don't always watch. watching. I know. <laughs> But I do, I do enjoy every now and then when I when I peek into it, I I'm like, oh, that's look, listen to that cute voice. That's great. It's like it's it's a lot different than what I overhear from my uh, my sons, like you know, watching streaming gaming stuff where they they seem serious. Oh, we've but, got uh, a blinder coming up. We've got a we've got a really good episode where uh, we unlock some extras. So yeah. Oh. Oh, some secrets will be revealed. Some secrets, yeah, yeah, yes. big one. He was very excited to record this one. It was, uh, <laughs> it was good. That's good. That's good. Well, so the first item, uh, and and this, like I was saying, I'm looking forward to to making sure I understand the stuff because it's I, you know, I like to uh, as 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 you can see in my show notes, which I don't know if I'll publish in our show notes, but I, I like to very detailed go through this stuff, and I think I'm more interested in the. Uh, the kind of reverse engineering, I guess, the the strategy, but then also like the the operational consequences, if you will. And now, correct my somewhere where I'm wrong, but you got you got uh, you got Red Hat Linux, otherwise known as RHEL. And uh, what's going on there is basically, if you want to get the source code for Red Hat Linux, this is a little more nuanced. So maybe one of you can go over the nuance of it. But if you want to get the source code for for RHEL you have to either pay for a license or be in their developer program. And I think this is a change from, it used to be you could just get the source code whenever you wanted. So there's all these, as I'm sure you can list off, Ben, there's all these um, distros of RHEL that are just free distros of basically assembling the source. And now you don't have to uh, pay to get a uh, the binaries for it. And uh, so changing this, this over, obviously, it's a big change in the way things are done, has caused all sorts of... Uh, uh, I think, as the kids say, drama and uh, and things like that. But is that is that a is it, first of all is that kind of a fair summary of like what the switchover is the policy? Do do I have that right? I, I think so. It's quite a complicated topic, isn't it? Because it also mm. goes back a few years, and I think part of the vitriol that you've seen over the last week or so is related to past injuries where other decisions ah. around things like CoreOS, for example, have, have upset communities, you know, Linux communities. And then, um, you, you know, that pain has never really gone away. So every time sort of Red Hat moves the goalposts in some way, um, they, they seem to be met with, with a, 
you know, initially at least an awful lot of sort of resistance and um, and derision. But but it it is yeah, it's a complex uh, it's a complex story. It's got more to it than just one decision. It goes back through sort of a history of decision making. I think. Right. Right. Yeah. And and uh, you know, in the broader. We don't talk about this this stuff a lot here on the Tanzu Talk, but it comes up on my my other podcast, Software Defined Talk, a lot. Like, I think over the past, well, I guess it's like five years now. There's been all sorts of, I think, largely driven by the you could call it. Uh, it's not a loophole, but the unanticipated capabilities that public cloud companies have with open source software. There's been a lot of of trying to redo the norms and the legal language of open source software to limit what public cloud companies can do. <laughs> right. And so there's been a lot of like tweaking and experimenting because, you know, it seems like ultimately in the, not ultimately, but in the open source world, one of the expectations given that the open name is that basically you can get the code and run it for free and not have anyone mess with you, except, you know, depending on the license regiment that, that you uh, sign up for. And especially when it comes to modifying the code and then, uh, you know, renaming it and selling it and things like that, that's where the public cloud companies can do all sorts of stuff. Because I guess there's no trigger of distributing the code if you're just running it, which often in the open in open source licensing, it's like, especially in the uh, the GPL, once you distribute the code, that's when everything kicks in. But I guess at some point, someone decided that if you distribute it over a network, that's not distributing it. So therefore, uh, you're cool, <laughs> essentially. Although, I wonder if, I mean, this is a total side note. If, if I understand what the web assembly is, that's effectively distributing the code down to a browser, right? But maybe not. So that's an interesting, fun thing to think about. Like if you downloaded all of the code into a web browser and you could turn off access to the internet and run it, it's kind of the same as actually downloading some app, even though it runs in a browser. But Maybe we'll let someone else think about that. At some yeah, point. I think I think Wasm is compiled though, so it's not like raw source code like a web page mm. or some JavaScript. I think it's actually been compiled. Right, right, right. But anyway, so yeah, there's all that going on. I, th I think for me, this goes back like 20 years. If you, if you think back 20 years ago, if you were a vendor of some software, mm -hmm. there was always a risk that a vendor would go bust. Right, so you'd be or you'd be an enterprise. You go and buy some vendor software, like a you know a database or a, you know a web widget, whatever it is. There was always a risk that you were buying into this thing that you didn't re you couldn't really tell what was going to happen with the company behind it. So there was some risk there, and open source just became more and more popular year after year because it took away that risk. It was like okay, well, all of our source code's in the open, so if anything ever happens to us then you can just go and pick it off yourself and reuse it and expand it and fix any bugs that are with it, blah, blah. And that's how it all kind of started in the enterprise uh -huh. world, right? But then you fast forward 20 years, you know, that's not really a risk with Red Hat. You know, so so the, the source code being in the open for them, um, I, I suppose from their point of view, they're now sort of seeing a different scenario where that openness is is from their perspective being abused by folks who are doing very little other than repackaging the code and sticking a different name on it and then shipping it uh, in order to get around the fact that you know you you perhaps um, 
would otherwise be subscribing to a, an, a rel license right so i can sort of understand it from both both points of view you know <laughs> from red hat's point of view it's like well if you truly need the source code, that's not a problem. Your subscription covers you and you can have access to all the source code. And that takes away, that mitigates the risk of, well, if anything ever happens to Red Hat, what am I going to do? Well, there's all the source code. You were, you were allowed to have it because you're a subscriber. But the other folks who aren't subscribers, who are just using it to, you know, repackage it, stick a different badge on it. Yeah, that's not so easy for us to then keep pouring investment into that particular um, product, right? Because every investment that we put in, we only necessarily see some of the reward from that. You know, some yeah. of the reward goes elsewhere. So I don't know. I, I'm not trying to defend anyone. I'm just saying I'm, I can see both sides of the argument and they both seem valid. And, and now, now, now here, here's the part of, of this that, uh, that, that, confuses me and not, and not confuses me as far as intention and strategy, but the mechanics of it. And that is, all right, let's see, let's see. This is the first time uh, I'm going to run through this with, with maybe some educated people's reaction to it. It sounds like the main issue is, well, there's two issues from what you're just saying, Ben. One is like, I would like to run rel, but I don't want to pay for it. And that's what th that's, I think sort of like that starts to become not such a big deal because one of the points of running rel is that you not only that it works but that you get support from from uh, red hat as with any sort of open source thing right so a lot of the the kind of enterprises and organizations we would talk with they're like well yes paying for stuff gets you something <laughs> right like it it gets you support so that's fine so i don't imagine there's a tremendous amount of uh people running like rel that don't pay for it i don't know i, Who knows? I, I agree because red hat already bundle up other alternatives that are free like fedora yeah and so, then so 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 there's that group now there's another group of people who are let's call them like the community and the community are both like uh people like like i'm sure at vmware we're part of it we support rel and we probably like want to certify our stuff that shows the ignorance of i have with the rest of the company which is embarrassing but you know, we, we I'm sure we support various versions of it. So you've got to test with and try it out, like you know, make sure that stuff works as you would with any piece of software. And then there's smaller independent people, not in stature, but in organization size, who uh, you know want to test against it. You were playing around with your camera settings earlier, Ben. Maybe that person is like, I want to make sure it works on desktop rel. I I don't know if that's a thing, but you know, all sorts of testing that people might want to do. So there's those people who are basically, let's call them developers, and they want to test and certify what they're doing uh, against that versus the users of it. And so I think their issue is like, well, now I can't get access to the the, the code without paying for it. Or uh, th there's, a, there's another option where you can ha get a, a developer license, which is free to sign up for. And then my understanding is you can run 16 simultaneous machines with rel on it i don't know if those are virtual machines or physical machines but let's just go with machine i could assume that you could have a big beefy physical one and run 16 virtual machines in it whatever simultaneously and so like that that seems and the only reason well not the only one reason that would be annoying is if you are using one of these other 
uh, like built rel things, which is not rel, but you know, the alternatives we were talking about, you've probably built out your, your pipeline and your, your build environment, all this stuff to like work with that. And now you would have to spend time to convert over to this other method of doing it, which gets us to the, why would you have to do this? And this is where I, I think I know what I'm talking about, but like, so normally if, so the other thing that I think they said is, let me make sure I get this right. CentOS, not CentOS, not CoreOS, which is another thing. But but with with CentOS, I think what the policy is, that's, I always get confused about the streams. Does anyone ever talk about right and left streams or is it only up, up and down? Like, that's Just don't cross them, that's all, that's all I can remember. <laughs> so, so it sounds like the new policy is that, so CentOS is upstream, which is to say it's where future development for, for RHEL is done. So at some point, I think twice a year, because there's two major releases for RHEL every year, it looks like, from my understanding, at some point, the whoever is in charge of this takes the current state of CentOS and says, this is our May version. This is our November version. This is the major version that we have for this year. And then at that moment, CentOS is synced with RHEL. So you, you actually have like a code base of what the major version is available in the open source version. So in theory, on that day, you could take that source code and be in the same state that, that you would be today. But then the problem is, if the policy is that they only, I think sync is the wrong word, but if they only sync the code between their upstream CentOS and then RHEL, that means that that in between time, you can't get that code, including, I would assume, like patches and security patches and things like that. So like, basically, you... At any point, unless you want to pay for or use this developer thing, you will be like, let's say, 60 seconds to six months out of date with the current, like, the the rel that people could have. So you wouldn't be able to fully certify your applications if the people you wanted to certify were on the most recent major release, essentially. And and then that that seems to be where there's, like, some annoyance uh, that that comes in, among other stuff. But does that... Am I talking crazy or am I somewhere in the right area of, of the mechanics of the stuff? Well, one area of confusion for me, which you, you might have done the research to, to answer this question. Does any of this affect distributed binaries like the ISO? Mm. So the ISO that you would use to build your virtual machine or whatever, is that affected or is this just about source code? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know the space in enough detail to have done more research. Because <laughs> if it's just about source code, then it affects people who are creating distributions. Right. Right, because they want to, you know, stick a badge on it and say, here's my distribution and maybe add a few extra packages or even remove some packages, you know, depending on what they, what they want to do with their distribution. But if you're, you know, if you're, say, like, you know, your earlier example, you were, talking about maybe I have virtual machines that I build out with Red Hat Enterprise Linux, right? You'll be doing that from an ISO. You won't be doing that from source code. Right, 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 right. So, the, yeah. so that wouldn't necessarily be affected if the ISO is not affected. So, so it's an important point, I think, for because no, that it makes sense. Perhaps, perhaps sort of shaves off a whole bunch of folks who don't need to worry about it. But you would already right, be right. paying to get access to those binaries, wouldn't you? I don't think the the real right. binaries were freely available. I mean, you can there's lots of trials, and like they said, there's this developer method. Right. 
whereas the source code was freely available. I think that's the difference. So yes, if you just gotcha. use, if you just consume rel as a binary, you don't care. You'll still get it, however you got it, I suppose. Right. Um, but the and that's I, I would assume that's files. why that's why these alternate builds you can easily get a binary from them because they've made the binary yeah. that that I, I I don't know how each rel ISO or binary is built, but I assume that the whole point of these alternate builds is that. The, the the ISO you would get from a paid Red Hat subscription and then the ISO that you would get from one of these alternate things, it varies only by like name. And it's essentially the 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 same thing, like all the way down to like default configuration and, and all this kind of stuff. And uh and so therefore, like going back to 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 my thing, it seems like people could still make those alternate binaries, but now they don't have like but now they have to wait six months to get like perfect parity with uh with with what the official rel thing is because there's only because while while i mean the the, the way that uh development works is like if you're doing a software release every six months uh which is what's going on in the the centos thing right like they that's where the upstream development for rel is which is to say the future versions of RHEL are done in CentOS, which is all in public. You know, you might decide in month two to like, I don't know, I'm going to be crazy here to like make a point to just like remove IP4, right? Just like, we're going to remove that. But then you might decide in month five, no, we should put that back. So like, you you know, you're, you're kind of messing around with what the features are in there. So if someone goes and uses the upstream stuff to build their distribution it's not necessarily going to be what actually is in, in the major release i don't know i'm kind of confusing myself here but but that's the whole thing in, in reading through it is what it would be one thing if if it was as simple as like now you can't get the source code <laughs> so, so that you can build stuff but then there's this whole thing you can't get the code exactly but you can get the code that from the future that 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 will be the actual code which which seems really i don't quite know as i think it was in the register article they they said uh, uh a way of thinking about it is it's a a beta version of it right it's it's what will be used for the the next version of it but but that that makes my mind hurt as i'm demonstrating just looking at distro watch um according to according to that website distributions based on red hat uh, there are eleven. So there's eleven distributions affected. Most most recognizable names from that list, I I think, are Alma Linux and Rocky Linux. They're both mentioned quite a lot, but there's only eleven of them. Like there's not hundreds and hundreds of them. Yeah. So you got to wonder, like, okay, is that, you know, is it is the policy? Just to stop, you know, just to make life more awkward for eleven other distributions it doesn't sound like. I don't know if it's worth it, right? <laughs> I don't know. I get the impression to me that it. it's it's more of a philosophical problem in a way, as in people like the idea of open source, you know, free as a puppy. But it's the idea that you can create something and then a whole ecosystem can get built around it, and it feels like Red Hat going against that, right? Actually, if it's only eleven distributions, for example, who are rebuilding rail and making it available in other forms other ways none of them are you know 34 billion dollar companies they've taken huge amounts of revenue off red hat um 
So the argument has always been, well, they're just helping Red Hat, right? There'll be more people learning how to use, it's not RHEL itself, but it's RHEL compatible stuff. Maybe it's building tools on them. Maybe it's experimenting in ways that benefits RHEL as an ecosystem. And by clamping down on it, you're saying, well, we want our stuff and we don't want anyone else to add value as those mm. companies would see they're doing. Um, and Red Hat is saying, we're just saying, we don't think it adds value anymore. We used to think having that community around and other people maybe just gaining familiarity, maybe just boosting the name. We think that will help. Actually, we don't think that helps us, so we're going to stop it. Mm. And everyone else is, I think, looking at it and going, well, hang on, open source always kind of works that way. Like you put out Kubernetes, right, a core. Everyone comes up with loads of great ideas, builds around it. It, you know, what is it? The, the rising tide lifts all boats. Red Hat are kind of saying, no, it doesn't. Right, um, right. And that's I mean, the problem. A lot of people like that idea. And just Red Hat, who are big and have a lot of influence, saying, maybe not, is a bit of a kick in the teeth to open source as a concept. Yeah, and and that's like that's. I mean, I mean you're 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 bringing up the the the, the tricky part of of open source. I don't even know. It's, it's not so. Well, I guess you could call it community management. Is like it's really hard to change the norms of your community once they've been established, especially for decades, <laughs> right? And 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 you know, it's easier if you well easier. It seems like uh, mentally easier if you have uh, when in kind of smaller communities, but like. For huge, big ones that have been around for a while, it's just like no, no one likes their. Uh, remember that old saying: "Their cheese moved." No one likes yep. cheese being moved around, which uh, which is difficult. But you know, I'm always sympathetic. It's it's hard uh, doing open source businesses are are can be difficult, uh, especially if you can't change things around uh, very often. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll get I'll get someone I'll get some more clarity on the exact mechanics. I asked my other community about it, and we'll we'll see we'll see what they say. Uh, hey, maybe, uh, maybe as a final thing, I'm running Fedora, right? <laughs> I'm running Fedora on my desktop. I'm talking to you through Fedora right now. Uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux is based on Fedora. So, you know, it's an upstream for that particular project. So, you know, so may Fedora, maybe that's, right? that's, a, that's a good point to, to close out because glossaries are often in the back. It's like, so what is, what's the difference between a Fedora and, and a CentOS? I think CentOS as well also is based on sort of Fedora. I'm looking at it's a bit of a it's a bit of a spider web, but they they both sort of share some stuff. Um, I think I view RHEL as what they what they basically add to RHEL, in my opinion, is stability. So mm. so Fedora is quite fast moving, and of course you know things can occasionally break. So they test stuff with the community in Fedora and in the sort of upstreams of, of RHEL. And then, you know, with the, with the idea being that, that RHEL then becomes more um, stable as a result, but perhaps doesn't have the same sort of bleeding edge features. Uh, so, for example, Fedora was first to get the um, Wayland uh, window manager. It's recently moved over... Um, the sound stack over to Pipewire, I think. So um, they're the first to try out big new projects and try and integrate them into the desktop in a, in a useful way. Occasionally stuff breaks that way, but I haven't experienced that. But, you know, enterprises might. So enterprises want something that's more stable and more proven, but perhaps doesn't have their absolute cutting edge features sort of thing.
Right, right. It's it's the future, the 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 uh, the upstream where experimental stuff can be put in and taken out, and also can be buggy, which for an individual makes it exciting. Essentially, you get new features, you get to play around with stuff. But yeah, CentOS is perhaps an alternative. Maybe the problem there, not a problem, but one one caveat being, um, it, it's because it's a stream sort of release. It's going to change quite rapidly compared to something that's got a slower release cycle. So you would have to be prepared for upgrades and things over time more often than you would with something right. with more stable. Right, right, right. You, you, you know, you'd want stability, as you're saying. Yeah. Well, that's for folks. For folks used to uh, Ubuntu world, you know, in Ubuntu they have the LTS releases every two years, and then they intersperse those every six months with slightly less stable, slightly more cutting edge uh, releases. Um, Fedora is only doing the sort of six monthly release cycle. It doesn't have a two year LTS cycle, for example. Right. Is this a pain we're all going to go through then? Because I've just seen this is Tansy talk, right? I mean, we and probably most of our customers are used to very rapid churn. <laughs> Things do not stand still long in Kubernetes land, right? We went from, what, yeah. four releases a year. We've gone back to three releases a year. Now there's some moves to do long-term support in Kubernetes land. Maybe we're going to hit this same issue again of actually they do want slower, but everyone should be used to the CentOS way of living, streamed, regular patching, regular updates. Mm. That does seem like a concept that comes up every every 10 or so years. Now, that was, yeah. to confuse it more, that was sort of the philosophy of CoreOS a while ago. I remember when I was an analyst, I talked with them, and I forget the name of the, the, the person, but they had people from the Chrome team. And I remember them, when they were first a company, they were very excited about the idea that Chrome would auto-update itself. And they were like, what if you could do that for operating systems? And I, I don't know if that kind of panned out for like what CoreOS actually ended up doing, but it was, uh, you know, it was, an, it was an interesting idea. And I don't, I mean, you sort of have that for your you desktop do. machines. And yeah, you do have that. Suzy has uh, Tumbleweed, for example, which is a build that does exactly that. You know, there's no such thing as a release. You just sort of get an ISO, which they've prepared for you, and then you grow it over time. You just, you know, run the usual updates. And uh, it, 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 there is no sort of release cycle with that. So, the, so yeah, it already exists, absolutely. Isn't that yeah. Windows nowadays as well, like Windows 11? Wasn't that meant to be the last big release and then it would just be constantly iterated? I don't pay any attention to Windows anymore, but I'm pretty sure they've all gone that way as well. It's definitely kind of like that, but I still think there are some sort of big bundles every now and again of, of new stuff. I think they did like a Windows 11.1, didn't they? Well, I don't think they called it that, but I think they did, uh, which added some new sort of stuff in there. I don't know. You, you, you mostly, I think you're mostly correct, Ed, to be honest. I think that's pretty accurate. But I don't well, I think as much either. <laughs> I, I, th I think we have a lot new fodder for me trying to figure out this situation here. Maybe, <laughs> maybe over the next couple of weeks, because it is, it is, uh, you know, like 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 all of us having having been part of and followed the open source world for so long. It's always fun to see uh, little little experiments and things happen. See see what goes on there. But Kubernetes and and open source things, I think I think at least one of us, and I think that's Ed, knows a little bit, has read a little bit about what crossplane is. Now, that's it's it's a uh, I know I know we do some stuff there with them, and uh, also uh, I remember at KubeCon EU they they were interesting to talk with, but I haven't actually looked in and see what it does and like. I mean, you know, it configures and runs some Kubernetes stuff. 
as it all does. But what uh, what's yeah. what's your take on what what crossplane does, Ed? What's what's the the point? So I didn't go too much deeper than you, to be honest. And I did much same of chatting to people at KubeCon. But my understanding of it, because so my where I came into it from was right. This is another kind of infrastructure as, as code and cross cloud kind of way of provisioning resources in AWS, GCP, whatever. But it's all done through a Kubernetes lens, as you said. Everyone wants a bit more YAML, so let's have a few more of them. Um, and obviously, it extends the whole, you know, CRDs, let's load a stuff, load essentially some sort of object models, right, into Kubernetes and say, this is how you understand a, an AWS S3 bucket or something. Um, and I sort of thought, well, I think people have done that, I say historically, but, you know, they've done that pre-Kubernetes using things like Terraform. And you can mm. just have various providers and you sort of, I can't remember what the Terraform terminology for that would be whether it's modules and things, but you could in Terraform just say, I want to spin up something, I'm going to write my code, and then I can apply it to whichever cloud I need, and therefore that's how I'm going to do a lot of my multi-cloud provisioning. And Crossplane just came along and said, we'll do that in a Kubernetes native way. So actually, you still write your code, but now it's YAML instead of HashiCorp's configuration language, and we will apply the, the, the extensions in Kubernetes are a native part of Kubernetes, so that's easy. Terraform had to kind of create that from scratch first time around. Um, and a lot of the declarative nature, which is what Terraform was good for. And they were sort mm. of early to that whole, let's do it declaratively, not imperatively. Well, that again is built into Kubernetes. So again, happy days. Um, and Kubernetes is rapidly becoming that control plane everyone wants. They you know, started off just being, this is how you run containers. And everyone said, actually, you can do a ton of stuff with it. How about we have it orchestrate all these as well? Um, so it's just kind of slotting in. And it, you know, it can work with Terraform. That was another one, which, you know, several people pointed out. There's a ton of blog posts out there that show how to do it. So because Terraform is all over the place, if you've already got a ton of scripts that do a provisioning for you, you can just kind of stick cross-plane above them almost and say, you know what, spin up all these. And you can use some of the Terraform code to do the actual mechanics, but we act as the orchestrator, just as Kubernetes is as good as doing. Um, so you can have a bit of both better together if you've already got a ton of Terraform expertise, skills, scripts. If you don't, maybe you just start off with crossplane and do much the same kind of stuff. Um, and it feels like crossplane are doing a lot of what I think Terraform did, where it all started very infrastructure centric. And now it's sort of building up to can you compose things? So can you actually say like a three tier app in my my very legacy part of my brain? Something said vapp, vapp. It's the whole idea of I want not just a database VM, I want a database VM and a middleware and a web app. Well, I'll put three VMs, tie them together, give them a startup order, blah, blah, blah. You know, Terraform did that with modules. So you could string things together into higher level abstractions, cross play and let's give you the same kind of thing. Um, it's all more flexible. Things have moved on a long way from VMs. <laughs> I think most of our listeners probably have no idea why they are. <laughs> I don't remember them very well. Um, so yes, that was my cross plane in a nutshell. You know, it, 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 seem, it seems like, I mean, I have a general theory of like, whenever, whenever the infrastructure layer changes, you, more, you have to, not that you have to, but it's a common occurrence that the stuff above it is rebuilt to kind of, as, as I think you're indicating too, like, think like the underlying infrastructure. So like, there's a pretty dramatic way that Kubernetes, change in the way that you think about configuring and running infrastructure when you have Kubernetes in there versus virtualization ways of doing it. And so perhaps the tools that you want to uh, configure and deploy stuff on it, they also change to kind of fit with that way of thinking. And so if you have the, uh, the old uh, 
ye old infrastructure as code thing where you're you're writing out this is the way that I want things to be now now go out and do it for me then uh, it would make sense with Kubernetes that you have a, a whole different system there that, that people are doing. But that, that's good. That would make it easier for me to read a, a little booklet and, and figure out what's going on there. We'll see if I actually do that. I, I like this this uh, this idea of future me that I have. Sounds like a very proactive, uh, curious person. <laughs> That'll be good. But, uh, you know, there, there's, I, I'll put a link to it, but there's a, a couple of interesting in our space, like uh, a Forrester Wave and a Gartner Magic Quadrant about like, about uh devops platform things like like the the it's i don't think tell me you tell me if you agree with this ed but it's basically the notion of a platform that your developers use to like build their code and even kind of monitor it in production but these two types of of platforms that they define don't actually cover the runtime environment right it's only like the tooling around the actual platform. So something like a Kubernetes or even like an EC2 or wherever you're actually running the code is not included in these definitions that Gartner and Forrester have of your stack. Yeah, pretty much. They're, they definitely sort of cross, they do cross the streams, Ben, I think, as you said, very dangerous thing. But actually they are, they are largely around anything to do with the sort of development into production side of things. Um, so mm. that's why I look at the DevOps stack. Right. We are beginning to cross into some of those reports kind of cover the tooling for when it's in that, what you do. So a bit of it is around either do you do monitoring, like you said. So it's not, it's not quite the throw out over the wall of here's how you get your stuff in and then you can forget about it. It's here's how you get stuff in. How do you also manage it a little bit in production? So it's yeah. kind of all encompassing everything. I mean, it can, be in a, it can be what's in your IT stack top to bottom almost. Can you deploy to... Kubernetes, can you deploy to a cloud? Can you deploy to mobile platforms? And how do you monitor it once it's in to know your code's doing what you said it would do? Yeah, within, yeah. Within some realm encompasses everything in IT. <laughs> yeah. Quite a, an ambitious ask to rate those kind of yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely, they're, they're interesting to read through because it is, I, I think, I think this whole, this whole, everything we just talked about there, like, is kind of, we're trying to re, not, we're trying to figure out what it is now, <laughs> like like what a cloud native stack for that is. And so there's uh, these these two analyst shops have kind of a go at it and then explanation of people who, who are up to it. So that's that's fun to look at. Uh, but I, I think I think that's I don't know. I'm sure there's other interesting news things that have happened, but that's enough for us to go over this time, I, I think. Uh, and, and as always, if, if you uh, uh, want to check out the show notes, things we've referenced, you can go to tanzutalk.com and uh, find this episode. I'll put links to it. If you, uh, we, we live stream these on the uh, VMware Tanzu channel. If you're interested in that kind of thing, you can go look at that. And, uh, you know, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye.